Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audio Files, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher, currently working from my couch after 20 years of working in the classroom. Since millions of students and parents and teachers are also working from home right now, I wanted to do what I could to help make literature more accessible, to give students and practice reading and interpreting stories and speeches, poems and plays, essays and ephemera, to give teachers something to use to supplement their lessons, and to give anyone who wants to read and talk about stories and poems another voice to listen to. Normally in class, I read literature twice. Once straight through to get the main ideas, the plot, the climax, and the ending, and to see the important themes. Then I go back over it a second time, slower, focusing on the specific aspect we're examining, discovering the author's style and the choices made, and analyzing the effects of those choices. Normally, I would be reading this with students, who would hopefully be asking questions and making comments, offering their interpretations as we went along. That conversation is what drives the analysis of the literature because literature is a conversation between the writer and the reader, and one of the best ways to practice that conversation and to bring in more perspectives and ideas is to have the actual discussion with other people as you read. Since that isn't possible here, because there's nobody here with me, I would strongly suggest that you act as though this podcast is just the first run-through of this piece, followed by some initial thoughts from me, like conversation starters. The thoughts and the analysis I'm offering here are not, are not intended to be, and should not be thought of as the final answer to as to what this piece means. There are no final answers, because the conversation never has to stop. The story may always be exactly the same, but the people reading it today will not be the people reading it tomorrow even if the same person reads it both days. That person is not quite the same person, and the second reading is different from the first. So my suggestion is to have a paper copy or an on-screen copy of this piece in front of you as you listen to the podcast. Take notes, write down thoughts and feelings and ideas, highlight or underline or mark the parts that seem important and the things you have questions about. Then listen through my one-man analysis, which will come after the reading, and after some vocabulary definitions, if there are any words that need defining, because if you can't understand the words, you can't understand the literature. And often focusing on the specific definitions of the important words helps you see subtle points the author was making by choosing that word. And then after that, go back and read the piece again, or listen to my reading again if you like, and decide what I got right and what I got wrong, and what you would add to that. Then, if you like, please contact me and let me know what you thought that I didn't. I would love to carry on the conversation with someone other than myself. You can reach me through my website, www.theodenhumphrey.com, and leave me a comment through the contact page, or you can leave me a voice message on anchor.fm slash learning b lit af af. Today we'll be reading a famous short story from a less famous author. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. I wish I could do an episode on Bierce's best and most famous work, The Devil's Dictionary, which is one of the funniest and most insightful books I've ever read. Certainly the funniest and most insightful dictionary. But I'm trying to keep these episodes under an hour and ideally under 45 minutes, so reading the whole book is not happening. I got my copy of this story from Project Gutenberg, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot O-R-G, so you can find it there too. Ready? Here we go. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who, in civil life, may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. 
Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line, at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge, the end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was a sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively louder, longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. 
If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. 2. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and, like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth. And he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance.' They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The Commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad, and a single sentinel at this side of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It's now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. 3. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire, heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion. 
encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart without material substance. He swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away. His arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the, in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back! Put it back! He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish. But his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass. The humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonflies' wings, the strokes of the water spiders' legs, like oars which had lifted their boat, all these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with a spray. He heard a second report and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. 
The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps often enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly, how coldly and pitilessly, with what an even calm intonation presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long, been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning, The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all! An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of this smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular, horizontal streaks of color, that was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants, he noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of Aeolian harps. He had not wished to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. 
He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point, like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars, looking unfamiliar, and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, he found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. All right. Isn't that cool? All right, so here we go. We're going to do some vocabulary, and then we'll do uh, analysis. Vocabulary first, and this is just going down through uh, the story in order as the things that I thought needed to be defined. Uh, a sentinel is a watcher or a guard. Erect carriage of the body means carriage is how you carry yourself. Carry carriage. So erect carriage is stiffly upright, like a soldier at attention. Traversed means crossed. Loopholed. Uh, loopholes are holes cut for shooting through from behind a wall in a fortress. Um, used to be with arrows, but now they're for rifles. These are rifle holes. Embrasure is a larger opening in a wall or a parapet. So like where a wall, you know, dips down lower and you can put a cannon barrel through the, the, the gap. Adorn is to decorate to make more beautiful. Subordinates are people under the authority or control of others. A dignitary is an important person, one who deserves or receives dignity. Fixity is unchanging permanence, uh, motionlessness. Deference is humble submission and respect. Vulgar means low class, lacking sophistication, unrefined. The phrase commended itself to his judgment means recommended. So the same thing as recommended, commended. Secessionist is one who supports secession. In this case, a supporter of the Confederacy, the South, and the Civil War. Um, and he is an original secessionist, so like an OG. Ardently means passionately. Imperious means assuming power or authority without justification. 
which is interesting because that's the the thing that keeps Farquhar out of the Civil War, something that's without justification that is never really explained to us. Chafed means becomes annoyed, became annoyed or impatient because of a restriction or inconvenience. Dictum is a formal pronouncement from an authority. Summarily, and the phrase is summarily hanged, means without the usual formalities or process. Also note that we say hung in the past tense with items, so the clothes hung on the line, but with killing a human with a noose around their neck, it is hanged. That's the past tense. Poignant means causing a sharp sense of sadness or regret. Ramification is complex structure or process comparable to a tree's branches. Periodicity is the tendency to happen repeatedly at regular intervals, at periods, periodic. Effaced means erased or destroyed. Oscillation is movement back and forth at a regular speed, like a pendulum. Ludicrous is absurd or ridiculous. Inaccessible means can't be reached. Apprised is to be informed, to inform. An idler is one who is idle and, or inactive, one who's not doing anything. Endeavor is an attempt to achieve a goal. Undulations are smooth movements up and down like waves. Draft uh, is a single drink or breath. Preternaturally is in a way beyond what is normal or natural. Prismatic is varied in brilliant colors. Gesticulated means gestured vigorously. Aspirated means pronounced with an exhalation of air. Intonation is the rise and fall of the voice in speaking tone. Speaking tone. Presaging means predicting, showing what will happen before it does. Ramrods are the metal rods used to tamp gunpowder, wadding and bullets into a muzzle-loading gun. A martinet is a strict disciplinarian, especially in the military, like a drill sergeant. A volley is a number of shots all fired at once. Diminuendo is a decrease in loudness, the opposite of crescendo. It is usually a musical term. Smitten is the past participle of smite, as in to hit or strike. Commingled means mixed or blended. A charge of grape, which is a grape shot, which is called grape shot in a couple paragraphs down from that, is a load for a cannon that is made up of several smaller lead balls instead of one larger cannonball, like a bundle of grapes. It was used to shoot a whole bunch of individual people at once. Vortex is whirlwind or whirlpool. Gyration means turning around in a spiral or circle. Roseate means rose-colored. Aeolian is related to or activated by the wind. It's a reference to Aeolus, who is the Greek god of the wind. Interminable means without end. Can't terminate. Uncanny is strange or mysterious, especially in an unsettling way. Revelation is making something known that was previously secret or mysterious. Malign is evil. Delirium is a disturbed state of mind, often related to high fever or illness. And ineffable means cannot be expressed in words. So, I will say that this story requires less interpretation in some ways than some other stories. The point of it is mainly in the surprise ending. That's really what Beers was trying to write, that effect. Um, Beers seems to be writing about the idea that time slows in the moments before death, that one's life can flash before one's eyes. And he has taken the additional thought that one could imagine an unlived life in those last few seconds. It's an interesting idea, one that I've talked about with my students a number of times over the years, when this idea of time stretching and dilating comes up. Because if it's true that your life flashes before your eyes, and if it's also true, as this story implies, that the time that passes in those final instants could be extended almost indefinitely, could it be that your life passing before your eyes slows down to the same rate, subjectively, as real time? That in the last moment before death, you could actually relive your entire life, minute by minute and hour by hour? What if that's where you are right now? Anyway, the interest in the topic and the surprise twist at the end are enough to explain the story. The things we should talk about here are, first, how does Beer set up that ending? And second, why does he choose the details that aren't necessary for this specific story to play out? That is, of all the possible deaths he could describe in this way, we also have to talk about the way he describes the death, because especially the part where Farquhar believes that he is 
alive, but in fact, it's his last moments before he dies. That the description there is just fascinating and beautiful. But regardless, um, it, he could he could have that death happen in any way that a person can die. Why does he choose to have it be about a man being hanged by the U.S. Army for attempted sabotage? Why does he choose a Southerner being hanged by the North during the Civil War? First, let's just talk about the structure of the story and how Beers builds the ending. As I've said before, you can't have a surprise without building up an expectation. Something that comes out of nowhere without any build-up beforehand. My goat gets slugs in his hair whenever he eats guitars. It's just meaningless and weird. For Beers to have this surprise ending, we have to believe that Farquhar is escaping his fate, and also sort of suspect that he is not really going to get away. Otherwise, the ending would come out of nowhere. Beers does this in a couple of ways. He shows more than once that the ending of a story is not always what you would expect. When Farquhar is standing on the bridge and hearing this terrible metal tolling described as a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil, it had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its occurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. The last thing we would expect is that it would be his watch. That it would be an ordinary thing, expanded, almost exploded, by the narrator's fear-driven imagination. This puts the thought in our minds that other things might be exaggerated too, that maybe not everything in the story is as it seems. I think there's an interesting shift in the tone, too, because this little piece about the terrible tolling of this bell building up into an agonizing shriek of anticipation before the next noise, which turns out to only be a watch, is funny. It's ironic. It's absurd. I've said before that two of the key elements of humor are exaggeration and surprise. This has both. This story is funny, which really does not fit the man standing on the bridge with a noose around his neck, especially with this horrifying circumstance of standing on a plank with another man's weight balancing it and then the sergeant steps off the board in order to drop the victim to his death yikes and so when i see this humorous moment about his exaggerated fear of his own watch it makes me think huh maybe the story isn't so serious honestly this all takes me back to this guy's name which i think is pretty absurd but then the author was named ambrose bierce and my name is Theoden Humphrey, so maybe Peyton Farquhar is not so much of a much. Not to get too, too far off track, but this watch moment is also connected to another theme of the story, which is the infinite detail of the world, in the world. There's this absolutely beautiful passage that comes at the sort of a high point of hope and joy in the story, when Farquhar is broken free of the ropes and the cold water and reaches the top, the surface, and breathes in the air. And it says... He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Which is interesting, of course, because it's preternatural. It's something beyond nature, right? His senses are not natural. They're supernatural right here. Something in then this, this line, too, that explains it. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced upon, above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonflies' wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body part in the water. Look at how beautiful beautiful that all is. Imagine if you could look into a forest and see every leaf and the veins in every leaf and the insects on the trees and see all the dewdrops on all the millions of blades of grass and see the colors of every one of them. If you could see all that at once at the same moment, it's just a miracle. It's absolute paradise for your senses, for your eyes. Look at all the life. It's swarming everywhere. It's touching him. It's filling all of his senses, because he can, he can feel the ripples. He can hear the music of insects' legs dancing across the water. 
Now, think about this. And remember, when this comes the first time, we, we don't know the actual ending. When we are right at this point, we're suddenly joy that he has escaped, that he might live. Those details, that life, that beauty, they were all there before. He just didn't notice. The only miraculous thing in his perception here is that he can see all of it at once in one instant. But if you, as a living person, take the time and, you know, and, and focus, you could see all these miraculous things, all these gorgeous, beautiful things. So there's another theme that Beers is touching on here, which is the, about the result of a near-death experience. He comments here on how the disruption of his organic system has exalted his senses, right? Which then, that experience makes a person aware of all the magical, wonderful, glorious things in the world which they almost lost, and which they therefore now enjoy so much more for that awareness of having almost lost it. And I think the point here is that maybe we should try harder to enjoy it while we can, while we are alive and capable of perceiving and enjoying these multitudes of miracles. There's another maybe more challenging and esoteric idea here in that this beauty in the scene is in fact only happening in Farquhar's imagination. It's inside his mind. He's not really seeing any of these things. So maybe Beerus is trying to point out not only the wonder of the natural world, but the wonder of the human mind, which can create all of this experience, all of this infinite detail within itself, as in dreams. At any rate, the watch is only the first hint that the endings of stories are not necessarily what we expect. It's a maybe humorous one, which is strange, but that's okay, because the second hint Beers gives us about this is not at all funny. So, there's another interesting element in this story, which is the structure. Beers divides it into three sections, identified with Roman numerals. It gives the story a linear, composed feel, that it goes from one to two to three. But, of course, it doesn't. One is the present, the first section. Two is the past, the backstory that led to one. So, we've not gone forward in time in a linear way, we've jumped backwards. And then three is the imagined world between the first sentence and the last sentence of part three, because in the first sentence of part three, he drops and loses consciousness, and then the last sentence of part three takes us back to the present. In some ways, we can almost see this like the Christmas Carol, with the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, or, as Galadriel put it, things that were, things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. It's deceptive in a way for Beers to do this because his story doesn't follow the numbers, but I would certainly argue that it helps create the illusion he's trying to create, that things are moving forward and that they're believable as they happen, as they're described to us. Also, it maybe helps make another point that he's trying to make about the war and these people's choices and the consequences of those choices, but I'll hold that point until we come back to the secondary themes in this. But in part two, we get the second hint that things will not end how we expect them to end, because the soldier who tells Peyton Farquhar about the bridge and how it could be destroyed through sabotage is, in fact, a Union scout, who is apparently just trying to entrap Southern gentlemen so they can be executed. Notice the theme of deception, of illusion. Notice also how Farquhar is a willing participant in that deception, that he pushes and pulls the scout to tell him what he wants to hear. The soldier doesn't have to work at all. Farquhar jumps right into the trap. I think this section of the story also builds some sympathy for our idiot who's a would-be saboteur. Not too much, but enough so that when he escapes the noose, we're happy for him. And when he's dodging the shots, we're on his side and hoping he will get away. Because he's a southerner, he's a slave owner, we don't like that. But also, I mean, he's tricked, he's fooled, he's just a sucker. He's entrapped by the feds, which is kind of a funny idea. Um, not funny and a humorous way, but it's, it's strange to think that this goes all the way, this idea of the feds and trapping people goes all the way back to the civil war and this federal scout who, like I said, I mean, Farquhar is not a soldier. He's just a plantation owner. He's just a planter. He is a politician as Beers calls him, which is a nice sarcastic comment from a northerner about the Southern planters, but he's not fighting in the war. He wishes he was, but he's not. So there's no military advantage in the scout suckering Farquhar. It's like he's just looking for Southerners to trick so that they can ex they can catch them and then execute them. He's essentially setting him up to be, uh, I don't want to say murdered because he does, you know, he does try to commit sabotage and it is a war, but still, he is a civilian. He's not a military target and the federal scout suckers him in. So 
that makes us dislike the Union a little bit there, at least that scout there, and it makes us therefore sympathetic with Farquhar. Um, so anyway, that leads us pretty directly into part three, which starts off with the story's action sequence. Beer starts it off with a description that again gives us hints of what's really happening, but he conceals it nicely because he does what every liar knows how to do, stick as close to the truth as possible. This isn't a lie, it's a story, and there isn't truth as such. But in creating this illusory timeline, Beer sticks as close to the quote-unquote actual timeline of the story as he can. Farquhar falls through the bridge because the last thing that happened in part one is the sergeant stepping off the plank. And right there, Beer says that he loses consciousness and, quote, was as one already dead. Mm-hmm. Then, Farquhar feels immense pain radiating out from his neck. He feels nothing from his head but congestion and fullness. Maybe hinting a little that there is too much happening inside Farquhar's head. Fullness. But mainly pointing out that his head is separated from his body by the killing noose. That it's attached. He doesn't feel it. Um, it's separated by his neck, which is about to break or is already breaking. I'm not clear precisely where this imagined life is lived. Between the drop and the snap? Between when his neck breaks and the actual moment of brain death? In terms of the description of agonizing pain shooting from his neck to all of his limbs and a strange congested dullness in his head, like the blood in his head is stuck there by the constriction of the noose, his swelling... I think that this is where his neck is broken and the few seconds it takes him to die are when the rest of the story happens, at least in his mind. Because in the last sentence, the very end is he's dead and he's swinging. Um, so when the story's happening in his mind, there's this great passage again where Beerus describes Farquhar's sensations minutely, but it has two separate meanings. So he says, the intellectual part of his nature is, was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heart without material substance. He swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. So meaning one, he is dying. His brain shuts off. He can only feel, and feeling is torment. Meaning two, he has been dropped and is in a crisis, but his body goes to fight or flight, instinctive survival mode. I particularly like the ambiguity of the luminous cloud of which he is now the fiery heart. Either that's the last infant instance of his life, or it is his body exploding into adrenaline-fueled readiness for action. There's probably a hint in that he is a luminous cloud without material form, which is the next sentence or the next part of the sentence, meaning just a ghost, a spirit. But maybe he's just feeling numb, which fits the continuing description, and maybe fits someone in an adrenaline rush, slow motion, trying to escape and survive. The light about him shot upward is fascinating. It's implying that he's falling, right, because the light goes upward. It's an impression that is emphasized by the loud splash, but it doesn't actually say that he's in motion here. It doesn't say that he falls into the river. Beers doesn't say that the splash is water. There's a description of unimaginable oscillations, which is feels exaggerated, like, how is this happening here? Um, so there's these, these little details that make it seem strange. Um, but we're also set up to accept this is exactly what Farquhar is imagining, that he has fallen from the rope, and now, with a splash, he's in the water. It says, the frightful roaring in his ears and all going cold and dark. That could obviously be his final moments as the trap blood pounds in his ears, and then death shuts off the light. But we're already primed to think that he's splashed into the water and is now somewhere different. His power of thought is then restored, it says. I mean, really? And he knows he's in the water. But it doesn't actually say he's actually in the water. He fades deeper and deeper into the cold darkness, the last light far above him getting dimmer and more distant. This is death, clearly. The light's fading. He's going into the darkness. I love the detail there that the noose is keeping water from his lungs. Yeah, it's keeping something from his lungs. And there is no water in him. That is also true. Uh, this next part, as he suddenly turns and rises into the light and apparently breaks free of his bonds, his arms floating upward, it combines descriptions of his great pain with the actions of his body that are taken without his will. He doesn't swim toward the surface. His hands uh, splash and move him toward the surface. He doesn't tell his hands to break free and then loosen the rope about his neck. They do it without his will while he's watching like an idler watching a juggler 
and cheering the juggler on from detachment, from objectivity, not part of the scene. He doesn't choose to breathe. It all happens without his mind actively telling his body what to do, without Farquhar himself doing these things. Almost like it's not actually happening at all. The following escape is marked by incredible luck on the part of Farquhar and also impossible attention to detail. He sees the gray eyes of the marksman who tries to shoot him. He hears every word of the lieutenant commanding his men. The bullets all miss him. The cannon misses him. One bullet lands warm and comfortable, uh, warm and uncomfortable on his neck. Interesting. Why on his neck, we wonder? What warm, uncomfortable sensation would there be on the back of his neck? He is swirled and flung about by a vortex so fast that his vision blurs into horizontal lines of color. That's one strong, fast whirlpool. And he lands on the shore out of sight of the bridge. Safe, where he is completely relieved, at peace. He says he would be content to stay here, to stop running and just stay. The sand is as beautiful as gems, diamonds and sapphires. The forest is regularly spaced. The trees like garden plants with the wind playing music between the branches. There is a strange roseate light. Then the cannoneer fires grape shot, but fires high for no real reason and misses him. Amazing. Pretty unbelievable. Almost like it's not happening at all. So the cannon shot, we are told, wakes him up as if from a dream and he runs into the forest where things immediately start getting weird. As he walks, the story gets more and more surreal as Farquhar fades away from reality. He walks into the forest and finds no signs of any civilization. It says he didn't know he lived in such a wild area, because he didn't, though it says there is something uncanny in the revelation, almost like he's realizing that this is not where he lives, that this forest is not the one he knows. But somehow, even though he doesn't know this forest, he knows he is going in the right direction. Eventually, he finds a road with trees growing like a wall on either side of the road, but without any sign of humanity or of life. The forest becomes like a drawing, vanishing into forever, like his perspective, like his consciousness. The stars above are unfamiliar and malign, evil. He begins to hear otherworldly whispers. Then there's this amazing moment when Beerus reveals the truth while maintaining the illusion. Farquhar feels his whole neck bruised black and swollen. His eyes are so swollen he can't close them. His tongue is stuck out between his teeth, which is not something you do when you're thirsty, but is something you do when you are being strangled. He can't feel the road beneath his feet because it's not actually there. That is the image of a hanged man. And then right after it is the final description, described as like a delirium after he must have fallen asleep, it says, while walking. This paragraph goes into present tense, and it jumps time and space. It is morning when it had been night. He sees his home, though he had been in the endless forest. His wife, who is described exactly like an angel, grace and beauty and ineffable joy, and these floating, fluttering garments. He springs forward and bang, he's dead. It's beautifully done, and it's worth reading the story just for that build to that climax, which turns everything in the story completely around. There are few stories that are read so differently the first and the second time through. You've got to love an author that can create that strong an effect just with words in just a few pages. It's amazing. Okay, the only other things to notice are, as I said before, the details that aren't necessary for this story. Farquhar could be dying anywhere for any reason. It makes for better action if it's got the hanging, but he could be a criminal or a soldier or even a saboteur in another war or one of, for the Union instead of the Confederacy. Beers chooses to make Farquhar an Alabama planter, a slaveholder, a defender of the Confederacy, but one who does not fight for some reason never explained to us. Beers chooses to set this during the Civil War while the Union is winning, and he makes Farquhar the victim of a dirty trick by a Union scout. Since these are not the main point of the story, there's plenty of room for interpretation here, because it could be seen either way anyway, and the main story doesn't really change. So this is definitely one of those places where the conversation happens, and if you have different ideas than me, then cool. Hold on to them. Don't just think that mine are absolutely correct. Um, so I tend to think that Beers, who Beers was a Civil War veteran himself. He fought for the North. 
Um, he suffered a traumatic brain injury in battle, which plagued him for the rest of his life, and that maybe showed him what it was like to have a near-death experience, but survive anyway. Um, so I think he's making a point here about the absurdity of Farquhar's dreams of glory. His glorious battle, the one that's going to win him renown among the Confederacy, it's, it's just an attempted sabotage. He's going to set a bridge on fire, and it's a southern bridge, and he's suckered into it by the north. He seems to have been caught inst instantly, as there's not one word in the story about his attempted sabotage and his capture. We start with him already on the bridge with a noose around his neck. So the glory here is, like his escape and like his flight to freedom, it's only in his mind. Um, the descriptions of the Union soldiers as almost robotic, they're machine-like in their efficiency. It does make them seem cold and maybe even cruel, but it also makes them inescapably efficient. And despite Farquhar's dreams, he does not, in fact, escape the clutches of the Union. Um, there's an interesting pair of possibilities here that goes back to the Roman numerals at the head of each section of this story. By implying a linear, like a logical progression, like math, from 1 to 2 to 3, Beers may be saying that the events in this story, the events in war, are the result of inescapable cause and effect. And any other explanation, like free will, for instance, is an illusion only in one's imagination. Farquhar wants to fight because of who he is. Because he's a Southerner and the South had a chivalrous, cavalier culture that promoted individual bravery and heroism, especially in defense of one's country and one's countrymen. Since Farquhar can't fight in the actual army, he's unquestionably going to take this chance. He is going to do this, take on this battle and, and fight this fight so he can have something to say that he fought for. And the Union soldiers will inevitably catch him and nothing on earth will stop them from hanging him. So, Farquhar is doomed by who he is, not by his choice. He is a Southerner, and his culture makes him this way. Uh, the opportunity to, to fight in the battle would come at some point anyway, but when he goes to try and fight, he is going to be caught by the Union, he is going to be killed by the Union, because that's what the Union does. They are efficient at capturing and killing Southerners. It just, it happens. One, two, three. At the same time, though, the story is not linear, and it doesn't move forward like counting. So, maybe the war doesn't either. Maybe claiming that war is inevitable avoids putting responsibility where it actually lies in the choices people make. That federal scout didn't have to stop at this house. He didn't have to tell his lies. Farquhar may feel social pressure to fight, but he doesn't have to do it, and he doesn't have to do it in this way. The Union soldiers do not have to kill him for this. They can imprison him. They can make him a prisoner of war. They can ransom him. They can do almost anything and just let him go. All these are choices that people make and then excuse a lot of the time by claiming they were forced to do it by circumstances. They were just following orders, for instance. Beers makes a couple of other remarks right in the opening paragraphs about the military. First, they show respect to death who comes as a dignitary when he is expected, even though they are most familiar with him. It's a nice comment about the close intimacy that soldiers have with death, and yet they show deference and respect to death regardless, though it's part of the point here that the men are showing respect to death, not to the man they are about to kill. Pardon me, the man, as Beers puts it, who was engaged in being hanged, which is a nice, you know, passive voice dodge to what's actually going on here, whom Beers calls a gentleman and no, quote, vulgar assassin, uh, Beers makes another sardonic comment about the liberal code of military justice, liberal because it applies to all sorts, the high and mighty as well as the low and powerless, though of course it isn't liberal, it sentences people to die and then kills them. There's one point though where Beers refers to the four men at the center of the bridge, the four men at the center of the bridge, which only counts the two privates, the sergeant, and the captain. The condemned man does not count. There's one other shot taken at Farquhar, too, when Beer says the sergeant, the one who actually carries out the execution, who steps aside and lets him drop, would have been a deputy sheriff in civilian life, which, of course, makes Farquhar a criminal, not an enemy soldier. Finally, even though history has decided that the North was in the right, and I agree, and Beer himself fought for the Union, it is worth noting that the underhanded trick here is played by the North, which makes this victory over the Southern saboteur just about as ridiculous as his dreams of defeating the Yankees. In describing Farquhar in Part 2, Beer says that he subscribes to the rankly villainous, frankly villainous, villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. Villainous because that allows anyone to do anything. There are no rules, no standards or scruples, no holds barred. All is fair. 
even though he says later that being shot would not be fair. But regardless, though we may feel bad for him and hope for his escape, Farquhar doesn't object or struggle when he's on the bridge facing his execution. Well, he did call himself a student of hanging. I suppose he considers his execution just as fair as his attempted sabotage. It feels like this is a possible criticism of everyone involved. The Union for bullying the Romantic South, the South for thinking they could pull off some great victory even when they had a rope around their necks, and the death itself, which has no glory and no romance. It just ends with a corpse gently swinging. There's also maybe something in the story about that final death. Bierce was an avowed agnostic, which probably means he would have been a full atheist if his cultural moment had allowed it. Though, also, Beerus never did what his culture insisted he do, so maybe that is precisely what he believed in terms of religion, that he was just agnostic. And in this story, right at the moment when the protagonist is reaching his heaven in the arms of his angelic wife, he falls into nothing. Darkness. Just a corpse. That may be what Beerus wanted to show his audience, that there may be dreams of survival and happiness in heaven in the last moments of our existence, when our minds are still alive, but really, then we just die. Personally, though, I'm looking forward to the surprise twist at the end of the story. And that is where I'm going to end this episode. If you have any questions, concerns, or issues you'd like to raise, or any suggestions for future episodes, please go to my website, www.theodenhumphrey.com, and let me know. Thanks!